If you participated, then you may feel free to have a second helping of lunch today after church. And I have spoken at enough churches that over the years, a conviction has deepened in me that children's messages are actually just a sneaky way of getting to us old folks. So thank you, Pastor Jody, for that very impactful reminder that no matter where you are in life, no matter where your journey is taking you or has taken you, you are never beyond the reach of our Lord who always will chase after us, who wants nothing more than to restore that relationship. Well, it is a joy to be with you this morning, and I am looking forward to being with you for the next few weeks. My name is Mike Thompson, as uh, Stuart told you. Um, we live in Belton, my wife and I. My wife is Jody. We have four sons, ages 16, 17, 18, and 25. So we have two high school students, a freshman in college, and we have uh, an adult who um, is living in Florida but surprised us at midnight last night by showing up for a surprise visit. Ordinarily, they would be with me, uh, but they are very much involved in getting ready for their Easter services. So this is a, one situation where I didn't feel right about having them follow me along uh, to, to hear me. But they do send their greetings to you. Uh, and as Stuart told you, I do quite a bit of interim pastorate work and preaching. But that's not my day job. My day job, now this, you may want to lock the doors uh, when folks hear this. I'm actually a lawyer. And I'm ordained. So right there, that should be worth the price of admission, shouldn't it? <laughs> Here's a fun fact. Did you know 25% of all Christian attorneys are actually speaking to you right now. <laughs> I started my career as a prosecutor, but I have been blessed uh, for the past several years of serving the Church of the Nazarene. I work at our global ministry center as part of the general secretary's office. As you might imagine, in my role, I spend my week hearing bad news and telling people things that they don't want to hear. And so it is a joy for me to be able to spend Sundays sharing news that people do want to hear, the best news possible, that we serve a God who can transform the human heart. And that's why I've been looking forward to being able to be with you. And to um, even though I'm looking out at uh, a lot of people who I don't yet know, I know that because of the way that Jesus works and the way the Church of the Nazarene works, by the time that... I am done here. Uh, I will be looking out at quite a few friends. So thank you for the privilege of being able to be with you for these weeks. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Mark, chapter 8, beginning at verse 27. And will you pray with me? Our Father, our time will go so quickly this morning. We ask that you would step in now and make time to be very significant. Lord, would you come in, and may it be that your voice is heard today, and whether it be through the human or in spite of the human, we pray that you would be the one who would be heard, because if the only thing that takes place today is that everyone hears from me, we're all going to leave here empty and disappointed, and this will have been a wasted morning. But if you show up and we hear your words, we know that they will be transforming and redeeming and life-giving. So, Father, we commit 
these last few moments of this service to you. And we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the word of God. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, beginning at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This is the word of the Lord. This passage comes at a critical moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. For three years, he has been with his disciples, leading them up to this point. And it's three years before he asks them the question, who do you say that I am? It's curious that he would wait three years, isn't it? I mean, after all, we believe that one of the things that you need to, to know in order to enter into a saving relationship with Jesus is you need to know who he is. And yet it's three years before Jesus ever gets them to the point where he can ask them that question. It's interesting, if you look through the Gospel of Mark, we see the journey that they were on before they could get to that point. And the way that it's written, you and I are invited to join with the disciples as they were on that journey. As they drew the conclusion about who Jesus was, and you and I are invited to draw that conclusion for ourselves. That's why I'm grateful that our children are with us today, because children remind us of that very precious, irreplaceable gift that God gives us. That is the gift of imagination. And as we go through the gospel stories, we need to not just be reading it with our heads. We need to use our imagination. We need to live it and see it the way the disciples did. So Jesus said that we have to be like these little children if we have any hope of entering into the kingdom of heaven. I'd like us to try that this morning and use that gift of imagination. Because as we begin with the Gospel of Mark, we see that in chapter 1, immediately after he begins the process of calling the disciples, the first time that we see Jesus, he is standing up in the synagogue and he's teaching. And Mark tells us that as he taught, he taught as one who had authority. Now what does that look like? I imagine that as he was preaching that day, that Peter and Andrew were sitting there and listening, taking in every word, and at one point, Peter turns to Andrew and says, Andy, have you ever heard anything like that before in your life? And Andrew said, I haven't. He's different than the other preachers, isn't he? And Peter said, he certainly is. You know, for one thing, he makes sense. And when's the last time you ever heard a preacher make sense? I mean, he sounds like he knows who I am. He knows what I've been going through. He sounds like he actually has the answers to what I've been facing. I think I'd like to hear more of what he has to say. But at that point, there's an interruption in the service because a man who is possessed by a demon starts making a commotion. And Jesus rebukes that demon, drives this evil spirit out of the man. Well, that gets their attention. And Andrew says, Peter, did you see that? Peter said, I certainly did. He drove the devil clean out of that guy. Say, Andy, do you think he could do something about the devil that's in me? You see, there's not a person who has lived for very long who hasn't who hasn't become aware of the presence of an evil within them. Some sort of a polluting, corrupting, defiling force that despite our best efforts, our best intentions, it always seems to get the better of us. And all of us in our better moments wish that we could be delivered from that. And they see that there and they're intrigued. And Peter says, you know, I'd like to know him better. Maybe we should invite him home to dinner after church today. 
And so they do. But when they get home, dinner's not ready because Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. In those days, a fever was a dangerous, deadly thing. Jesus goes in, lays hands on the woman, and she's made well. Well, let me tell you, they didn't have to put that in holiness today or send it out in the Nazarene news. That word got out immediately. The Nazarene grapevine took full effect, and it wasn't long before everyone in the neighborhood heard about this Jesus, this one who preached differently from everybody else, this one who had authority over the human body and over sickness. And as people heard that, they began to say, well, I, you know, I've got friends. I've got family who are sick. They might benefit from him. And, you know, now that I think about it, I don't feel all that good myself. Do you think maybe Jesus could do something for me? And so it wasn't long before people came from all over the place, everywhere. They're bringing their sick. Everyone wanted to know if Jesus could do something for them. One of the people who came was a man with leprosy who gets right up in front of Jesus and gets on his knees and says, Master, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, we can be so familiar with these stories, having grown up with them, that, that we lose the drama of it. But you realize that's an incredible story right there. Because leprosy was much more than just a physical sickness. Leprosy was the symbol of everything that was spiritually unclean. Now, we don't know a lot about this man, but we can deduce a few things. We can conclude that from the very first moment that his leprosy became evident, that he was cut off from everybody that he knew. Without even a chance to say goodbye, he was cut off from his family, from his home, his friends, his work, even the synagogue, condemned for the rest of his life to live in isolation. Wherever he went, he was required to call out, unclean, if anybody came close to him, because they believed that if, if his shadow were to touch somebody else, then that person would become unclean, and they would have to go find a priest to clean them up. So in those days, it was perfectly acceptable if you saw a leper coming down the street that you could pick up stones and throw them at him to drive him away. And this man, how long he had lived in isolation from everyone else, we don't know. But somehow word got to him. Word got to him about this one who preached differently than everyone else, who spoke with such authority. This one who had authority over the human body, over sickness, and he dared ask the question, I wonder if he could do something for me. And so in all the commotion, he somehow managed to get close enough to Jesus, close enough that he could kneel at his feet, that he had to look up at his face. He said, Master, if you're willing, you can make me clean. What he was saying was, I believe you have the power to heal all my broken relationships. And the amazing thing is that Jesus took his hand reached out and put it on the head of that man and said, I am willing. Be clean. Now, what did those words mean to that man? Those words meant, son, you can get up and go home. You can give your kids a great big hug. You can have dinner with your family this evening. You can sleep in the same bed with your wife tonight. You can go back to your old job tomorrow. Now, Saturday, you can go to the synagogue and worship with your old friends. You are restored. All your broken relationships. Now, do you think that got people's attention? Because in those days, just as today, they lived in a world of broken relationships. Marriages that had fallen apart. Families that, that where people weren't on speaking terms. Friends. 
who were going their separate ways. Churches that split. They lived in a world where relationships were broken everywhere they looked, and now there is this one in their midst who has the power to restore even that. Well, you can imagine that word continued to spread, and the next time Jesus got up to preach, there wasn't a place left in the house. Every pew was packed, standing room only. Folks were even spilling out into the entryway. They were out in the parking lot. There were even people over spilling onto Chipman Road. Everybody came because they wanted to know, can this Jesus do something for me? One of the people who came that day was a man who was paralyzed. Unable to walk, he got four of his buddies to carry him to Jesus. It's a very tender scene. I've often wondered, if I was in that kind of situation, would I have four friends who would care enough about me to, do, to go to that trouble? But when they get there, they can't get close to Jesus because of the crowds. So they climb up on the roof, make a hole in the roof, and just at 11.48, just as Jesus was getting into the 10.48, just as Jesus was getting into the best part of his sermon, the man comes down, even with Jesus' eyes, and Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. I wish someone had thought to pull out their phone and record this, because I really want to know what happened. In my imagination, the moment Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven, one of the guys up on the roof said, What did he just say? And I think one of the other fellows said, Well, it's kind of hard to hear, but it sounded to me like he said, Your sins are forgiven. And the first one said, that's what I thought he said. How'd religion get into this? We didn't bring our buddy here because he's a sinner. We brought him here because we want him to be able to walk. And I imagine Jesus looked up, smiled, and said, that's all right, boys. Either way, I've got it covered. But you know, they weren't the only ones who reacted because right in the front row, there were a couple of Pharisees who were taking in every single word and the moment Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, one of them sat up, bowled upright, and with some apoplexy, he said, what did he just say? And he jammed his elbow into the ribs of the guy next to him, and the other guy sat up. He said, well, I'm not sure, but it sounded to me like he said, your sins are forgiven. And the first one said, that's what I thought he said. Who does he think he is? No one can forgive sin except for God and God alone. And I think Jesus looked at them and winked. And said, that's right, boys. You're catching on. Now, notice what's going on so far in all of these stories that we've seen about Jesus. People listen and they watch, and here is this one who has the authority to be able to speak with such, a, with such authority and, and has such a commanding presence and opens up God's word to them in a way they'd never seen before. He shows that he has power over the demonic. Now, he has power over the human body and over sickness. He shows that he is the one who can restore broken relationships. He can even restore a broken relationship with God. And you can just imagine how word starts to spread and the conclusions people start to draw. And that's what we see throughout Mark is this story after story after story as Jesus encounters every kind of human problem. And he shows that he is the answer to those problems. And sometimes the stories come in so quickly that they sort of tumble over each other. At one point, as Jesus is going along, an official by the name of Jairus comes up and says, Master, my little daughter is sick to the point of death. Will you please come and lay hands on her so she will get better? And Jesus said, of course, let's go. But as they're going, suddenly he stops and he says, wait a minute, who touched me? And Peter says, what do you mean who touched you? They're climbing all over you. He said, no, this was different. 
And as he waits, this woman comes forward rather sheepishly and rather aghast, horrified that she's become the center of attention. And she says, I'm sorry, it was me. And she explains that she's been sick for years with, with uncontrollable bleeding. She spent every dollar that she has going after doctor after doctor. None of them are able to help her. It's just made it worse. And she said, you know, I, I didn't dare touch you, Jesus, because I'm unclean. I thought if, if maybe I could just touch the hem of your garment, I'd be all right. And Jesus says, daughter, you are all right. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Well, it's at that moment that Jairus comes back and says, Jesus, appreciate your willingness to come and help, but it's too late. I've just gotten word that my daughter has died, so there's no point in going any further. And Jesus says, what do you mean there's no point in it? Take me to her. And he goes in, side of this little girl, and he says, little girl, rise. And she comes back to life. Now, what do we see right there in those stories? We see Jesus facing desperation, despair, and death. But wouldn't you know it? Jesus is the answer to every one of those problems. Now, throughout all of this, there is this question that keeps being asked, implicitly and sometimes explicitly. The question is, who is this guy? Who is this one who preaches so differently from all the others with such authority? Who is this one who has the ability to heal the sick, to cleanse the leper? Who is this one who can forgive sin. And the interesting thing is there's no shortage of answers. Almost everybody has an opinion. Why, the crowds say, we know who he is. He's Elijah, one of the prophets. Herod says, I know who he is. He's John the Baptist, come back to life to haunt me. The scribes and Pharisees say, we know who he is. He's demon-possessed. He's got the power of the devil in him. That's how he can do all these miraculous things. His family says, we know who he is, and we're embarrassed to say it, but, you know, he's got a screw loose. We've come to get him to take him to Dr. Phil to help him, to get him some help. Folks from Nazareth say, we know who he is. He's a hometown boy. Why are you paying any attention to him? Why, we knew him when he was in school right here in Lee's Summit. The only ones who don't seem to have an answer are the disciples. In fact, the only ones who get it right are the demons. They say, you are the Holy One of God. You are the Son of God. And Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. But the disciples don't have an answer. And for three years it remains that way, and it's only after three years that Jesus takes them off to Caesarea Philippi, and there they are alone. And Jesus says to them, who do people say I am? Peter says, oh, Master, they have all kinds of notions. Jesus said, no. Who do you say I am? Peter said, we know who you are. You are the Messiah. And Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone. Isn't that curious? Does that ever strike you as odd? I mean, if, if the point of Jesus coming was so that people would come to know who he is and enter into a relationship with him, then why wait three years? And when they get the answer right, why tell them not to tell anyone? I wondered about that for the longest time, but I've come to love the answer. You know why he does that? He won't put the words in your mouth. Because if he puts the words in your mouth, if I put the words in your mouth, it's not authentic. You see, a head knowledge is insufficient. 
Otherwise, the devils would have been the first ones to be saved. It's not authentic until you reach that conclusion for yourself. It isn't authentic until it moves from an intellectual knowledge to a heart knowledge, to something that actually transforms the way that you act. And how did Jesus get the disciples to that point of accepting that heart knowledge? For three years, they watched him. And when Peter said, you are the Messiah, what was he saying? Well, the Messiah was the one that Israel had been looking for. In fact, that's what made a Jew a Jew was that he or she was eagerly looking for and expecting the Messiah. I think Peter was saying, Master, for three years now, we've watched you encounter every kind of problem, every kind of hurt, every kind of need, every kind of sickness, pain, suffering, every condition of the human heart. And every single time, you've not only shown that you had the answer, you've shown that you are the answer. Master, we believe you are the one we've been waiting for. In fact, we believe you are the one everyone is waiting for. Whether they know it or not, no matter what they're going through in life, we believe that you are the answer to every need of the human condition. And that, brothers and sisters, has redefined for me what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian, I no longer think it I, I no longer think that it's a matter of simply saying words that we were taught, words that we may have memorized, words we may have learned. What it means to be a Christian is where you and I come to that point of actually recognizing that there's something in him that isn't in here. And if I don't get it from him, I will never get it. When you get to the point of saying, Jesus, you don't just have the answers for me. You are the answer. You are the one I've been waiting for all my life. And I didn't realize it until now. And when you have that concept of who he is, it will transform the way that you approach everyone else. So that when the person sits down next to you on an airplane, before you ask them the first question, you know this. They either know Jesus or they need to know him. When a neighbor moves in next door, before you even know their name, you know this. They either know Jesus or they need to know Jesus. You see, if you have that heart knowledge where you have come to that conclusion, conclusion on yourself, for yourself, you won't be able to rest until, you re until the people around you realize that he is the one who is the answer to all their suffering, to all their longing, and all their needs. And so this morning, I need to ask you, who do you say that he is? And I'm not interested really in your words. What I'm interested in knowing is what the condition of your heart is. How did Jesus show himself to all of those people that he encountered? He showed himself through their needs. I think of that man who was lowered down in front of him, the paralyzed man. You know that man's need? The greatest opportunity for Jesus that day was that man's paralysis. No one remembers a word of what Jesus preached that day. And that's the way it is for most sermons, isn't it? But what they remember is that this man had a need. And that need was something that only Jesus was able to provide. So let me ask you, who do you say he is? And the follow-up question is, what kind of needs do you have? Are you facing a problem right now? A sickness? A struggle? A relationship? Is there something going on in your life that's just been vexing you? and you've not been able to get any answers to it, 
Could it be that you're looking in the wrong place? That problem that's in your life is God's gift to you to show you how much you need him. Not just what he can do for you, but that you need him. This morning, we are going to celebrate together the sacrament of Holy Communion. In the Church of the Nazarene, we practice an open table. You don't have to be a member of this local church. You don't have to have set foot in the Church of the Nazarene in your life because it's not our sacrament. It belongs to him. All we ask is that those who partake in it are those who have been able to answer the question, who is he? And so this morning, I ask you again, who do you say that he is? The way that it's going to work when we, in a few moments, when we partake of communion, is that our servers will come forward. When you come to participate, you will take a piece of the bread, you'll dip it into the cup, and you'll be able to eat that, return to your seat. That's the way that we usually do it here, but I'm going I'm to change things a little bit. Because the way that we normally would do this is that it would also go with a, with a liturgy, with some words that we would all say together, profound, powerful, reaffirmation of what we believe, our statements of faith. But this morning, it just doesn't seem appropriate for me to put the words in your mouth. This morning, when you are invited to come, I need to ask you, who do you say he is? And it may be that there would be some today who would say, you know what? I've been saying that he is my Lord. I've been saying that he is the Messiah. But in reality, I'm having difficulty moving that knowledge down about 18 inches. Because as I look at the situations and the problems that I've been facing in my life, I've been trying to take care of them on my own. And at best, I've been asking Jesus for some help so that I can deal with those problems. But if he is the answer, then we don't look to him for some help. We take our hands off, and we just let him be Lord. So who do you say he is? And it may be that there would be some here this morning who would say, I haven't yet made that leap, but I'd like to. Guess what? This sacrament can be for you today. And when you come forward, instead of coming right to one of the servers, I'd invite you to take a detour to one of these altars. And just confess to the Lord that you've been having difficulty letting go of that aspect of your life. But that you'd rather have him than have anything he can do for you. And it may also be that there would be someone here this morning who has never expressed with their heart or with their head a faith in Jesus as Savior today. This sacrament can be for you as well. And if that is you, I would invite you to come forward at the time of invitation, but instead of taking of the elements of the communion, do a detour to one of these altars. I'd love for you today to be able to enter into a relationship with Jesus and be able to truly answer that question, who do you say that he is? And the answer to your question would be, he is the one. I've been waiting for. He is the one who can satisfy every longing of the human heart. I would invite our servers to come forward. And as